This is God's word. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life as any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word, and let's us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday. We thank you for time with our Bibles open for you to help us understand your word and give us courage to obey it. Lord, may these things matter today, but may they matter through eternity. And Lord, would you give us what we need to think and to pay attention and to be a student of your word as you, the master teacher, unfold it for us. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, what do you think of goodbyes? You know, uh, I suppose depending on the circumstances, it it could run the range of... uh, emotions and so forth some of them are good there there comes a time where something naturally is to conclude and goodbye is a good thing maybe it's uh your house full of grandkids for the week there's time that goodbye is nice they'll come back but you need your breath you want the remainder of your afternoon to yourself but other times maybe goodbye is Sad. Um, maybe it's final. Uh, we we talked about this a few weeks past, and uh, I've had my own uh, trial by fire as well. One of the worst pains in all the world, and the agony associated with it is wanting to be with someone that you can't. And we're going to look at another thing in life that is very very difficult being misunderstood. Perhaps the goodbye is associated with a misunderstanding that couldn't be unraveled if you all had your lives to work on it. Some things like that just are not to be redeemed. But what we've got here in front of us is Paul's goodbye, at least to these elders associated with the church in Ephesus. 
Uh, we've also got a testimony of his own faithfulness in ministry. He leaves that with these men. That, we assume, is meant to be a word of encouragement to these fledgling pastors. They couldn't have been pastors for much longer than the time he'd spent there and the time he'd been gone since, maybe four or five years. He was with them for three. And then it also has a warning of things to come in the churches, though Paul would not know this and Ephesus would not know this. They show up in the book of Revelation as the church that lost their first love. And then by the second century, there's a renewal, a revival, and it's, it's back on track. But there's this warning, and uh, in the providence of God, it's well-placed. If you're looking for a way to organize this paragraph that completes chapter 20, you could say that Paul starts with his past, his time with them in Ephesus. And that's verses 18 through 21. We'll just call that Paul's time in Ephesus. And then you've got some future after the past. And this is verses 22 through 27. That would be his description of the road ahead. He plans to go to Jerusalem. Then in verses 28 through 35, his word to the elders has everything to do with the present moment in which they're existing. So it's not past, present, future. This outline is past, future, present. And then he signs the whole thing off with verse 36, 7, and 8. That's the farewell in summary takes place on a beach and they get him on his boat and they don't see each other ever again now we start out with him in Miletus and we finished last week with them leaving for Miletus Paul calls the Ephesian elders to come to him there at Miletus and we learn from a good map that Ephesus is about 30 miles north of Miletus so as the crow flies 30 miles, as they say, I always wondered, is it just crows that fly from point A to point B in a straight line and other birds meander and wander around? I don't know. I've seen crows goofing off and crowing. They don't always fly from point A to point B. Um, point being, because the road between these two towns 30 miles as the crow flies it's quite twisted and it would have required at least three days tops for a runner messenger to go get them and for them to come back. Maybe it was more than three days, but it would take a while, but not anywhere near what it would be if Paul himself were to travel to Ephesus and then back down to Miletus for the boat. So it's necessary that they come to him rather than he go to them. And before we get too far, this passage being a very important passage, one of my favorite passages, not just in Acts, but in the New Testament. There are a lot of things that we could camp out and talk about for some time. But I thought before we got too far, a few introductory points, useful, interesting factoids might help. Something for everyone. Uh, first of all, this is the only speech in Acts that is addressed to Christians. That sounds strange. You've got Paul, he's a pastor, but all the others so far were evangelistic. They're lost people He's trying to win, convince that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, there are times where he's speaking in defense for himself in a legal situation. He's in trouble. He's giving a defense. And if he can get away with it, he's going to preach there too, but to a lost audience. And then as we go forward in this book, from here going forward, Jerusalem, and then especially in Rome, there are going to be trials in front of Roman authorities, uh, some of them quite blockbuster but this is the only time we see Paul talking to a group of Christians, believers. And it shouldn't shock us that it's going to sound a lot like his epistles written to those churches. It sounds remarkably like this, even though there's no clue that Luke would have had access to any of those writings. We do know that Luke was here because he uses the word we. So that Luke's writing down notes from Paul's message to Christians should sound like Paul writing his letters to Christians should be no shock, and it's not. Also, let's see, we, I had one more in here. Um, all the leaders that Paul addresses in this section, and there can be different uses of the term pastor. There's three of them in the Greek, and in some translations they're used interchangeably, but this is probably exhibit A of them being used interchangeably. Um, the first is elders. That was in verse 17. He calls the elders from, from uh, Ephesus. And then they're called pastors, same guys, in verse 28. 
That's the first half of 28. The second half of 28, they're called overseers. And it seems obvious that these terms refer to the same people rather than uh, the idea that maybe these are elders, pastors, uh, bishops, or overseers from different house churches. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's not the plain reading of this. The plain reading of this is that Luke, listening to Paul, is comfortable using different words to describe the same guy. So what? What difference would that make? Well, in our time and with our denominational diversity among churches, there are hundreds if not thousands, if maybe not hundreds of thousands of different ways that churches go about governing themselves differently. And inevitably, they work back to texts like this and to words and the definition of those words as to the job description of what a pastor should be. What's the difference between an elder pastor and an overseer? In this passage, nothing. But visit different churches, you'll find out uh, there's a lot of difference that we've taken it since this point in history. Um, If you were to just stop somebody on the street and say, uh, could you explain to us what the term pastor means? We'll just take all three and lump them into the one that's probably used most often. What would people say? Uh, Among the lists, I just started jotting some of these down. Some may say a social worker. Some may say an educator. Some may say a facilitator, administrator, community organizer, psychotherapist. But who's going to take the microphone from the late-night television guy and say, oh, that's easy. They shepherd the flock of Christ, the Son of God. That's what the Bible would say that this word means. In fact, this passage says that that's what all three of these words mean. But if you were to go into church history, um, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our membership class when we went from Jerusalem to Fuquay Varina in about 25 minutes, um, One of those terms is borrowed from the synagogue. That would be elder. And it comes from the Greek word presbyteroi. We get presbyteros or presbyterian. That's a church that's governed by elders. Uh, You could go a little further down the road, perhaps visit another church. They're going to use this Greek word borrowed from the Greek culture. Episkopoi, overseer. Episkopos, bishop. Episcopal church. That's where they get their information. And then the last one is just a generic word for a guy who keeps sheep. Poimen, a shepherd. Which this passage, again, seems to say that they're all doing the same thing. More important than any of that, all of these words are used in the plural. So there's more of than one of them. He didn't say, go get the elder from Ephesus. Bring the elders from Ephesus. What does that mean? Well, we know how churches operate. We could take tests and ask questions and put out some type of white paper on this is how this church or this denomination does these things. But I think if we're studying Acts chapter 20, it's better to think of these men as a team. And it's likely that each has unique gifts for unique special tasks. But it seems obvious that they all share the pastoral care of Christ's flock. There's a lot here for another message for another time. But I thought that was worth interesting, interesting and worth mentioning. Um, so let's leave that there and go to the first point. This is Paul's time in Ephesus. And uh, verse 17 is preliminary. 18 is where we get to the story or the account. And they came to him. That's the delegation from Ephesus. He said to them, once they got there, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from this day to the first I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, tears, trials. I did not shrink, declaring anything that was profitable. I taught you in public and from house to house, which is privately, testifying to both Jews and Greeks, same message, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The way he goes about that, is that the way you, if, if you're going to meet some colleagues, we'll, we'll use that word, uh, you spent three years together, maybe there's been some turnover, maybe there's a guy in there you don't know, you get acquainted, there's introductions, but for the most part, you know them, they know you, you've been gone for about a year or so, 
And you start out by saying, you know the way that I operated when I was with you from the first day until the day I left. What does that mean? It means there's been a smear campaign afoot in his absence. It's obvious that he's trying to clear some misunderstanding by appealing to their memory of what went on when they were together. He mentions his humility, if you saw that there. Probably more his humiliations. They saw what had happened to this guy that, that, that would, to strange eyes, look ridiculous. He mentions his tears. He mentions his trials. He mentions the plots of the Jews who wanted to kill him and his faithful teaching and preaching. All of those things are important, public and private, boiled down to the same thing no matter who the audience, repentance and faith. So appealing to their memory is about all he can do, right? Um, at a certain point when misunderstanding is present in a room, you just work off your experience and see if this sounds anywhere close. There's a certain amount of things you can do to try to clear the air, and then working past any of that really just brings a bunch of diminishing returns. The worst thing about being misunderstood is the fact that it's hard to fix that once someone's come to a conclusion based on whatever they use to get to it and what's actually the truth. And it seems the more one wants to clear one's name, the more desperate they sound and maybe the more pitiful their case. And it works against them. But with him, he just says, hey, you were there. You heard what I said. And we can backtrack to all the other places. And it seems to be the same stuff. It's the same message to the same two groups of people. Paul's reputation in what Luke has given us is impeccable. But there were those people that went behind him seeing if they could ruin everything that he touched. So um, what happens from this point going into the next? That was his past. And we'll come back to all these and make an assessment at the end. Um, Looking toward his future, if you see in verse 22, he goes from the language of using, you know what it was like three years ago. You heard what I said. You saw with your eyes. Now he goes from you know to I know. I know this is what I'm looking at and this is where I'm headed. Look at verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. It's interesting. Then in 23, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. All right. We'll have to look at that. Uh, Only if I may finish my course. Now behold, I know that none of you will see my face again. I'm uh, skipping over the high spots here. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is the second time he said he didn't shrink from something. First one was he didn't shrink from preaching uh, or suffering Now he's not shrinking from declaring the whole counsel of God. But uh, if that's cool, the first one's confusing. You're saying here that the same Holy Spirit who warns Paul in every town of hardships and imprisonment is the same Holy Spirit that compels him to keep going headlong right into the middle of it. Jerusalem's not going to be a fun trip. Have you ever got mixed signals from the Lord or your Bibles? Wait a minute here. I know that uh, you you told me to do this, and now it looks like you're telling me to do something that looks as if it's going to get in the way of the other. Sounds a lot like parents, doesn't it? All right, son, this is what you got to do. Well, you told me last week I should never do that. Well, last week you were a different man, and I was a different father. I'm messing with your head on purpose. It's called life, right? I mean, sometimes we do stuff like that. But the Bible's not without its contradictions. What in the world does it mean? Abraham, you're going to be the father of multitudes. Well, my name's Abram, which means like father of some, which is even stupid because I don't have a son at all. And then once he's given the son, I want you to go sacrifice him on that mountain over there. How does that make sense? It's, it has to do with faith and it has to do with stepping out. 
But at the end of the day, practically speaking, pastor's two cents worth. He knows a lot that he just doesn't tell you. Because if he did, it would ruin the lesson. So it seems. So that's going on with Paul the Apostle. We'd love to think that he was sure and he knew everything before it happened. But no, he knows it's going to hurt and he's going anyway. Um, maybe that's how he seems to know that he won't see these men ever again. So I'm reading that. I'm thinking, how do you know? Maybe you wind up. Maybe there's a Walmart somewhere in Rome and you'll bump into each other, perhaps. That seems to be where I bump into so many of you. Uh, this is not like where I came from. There's only one Walmart. Pick which Walmart you want here. Um, keep moving. He's solemnly sure that he's innocent of everyone's blood, again, having not shrunk from delivering the message of salvation in its fullness. Maybe this goes back to some of that smear campaign. I don't know. But he says it a lot. Remember the time he was mad and he ripped his clothes and he said, y'all's blood's on your heads. It's a reference back to the Old Testament with the, the watchman. If someone invades in the night and the watchman doesn't blow the horn then the blood is on the watchman's head. He didn't sound the alarm. But if he sounds the alarm and nobody gets out of Dodge, the blood's on their heads. They heard the alarm, but they didn't do anything. Same with the gospel. So he's talked of his past, and he's talked of his future, um, giving them some expectation of where he's headed and what he's going to do. Um, but what he'll do now is tell them what they should do in the present. How many of you think that's pretty good? Every now and then you make a little uh, application along the way. If you have your past situated, you can own your past. None of us like all of our pasts. Some of them are riddled with mistakes. They make us who we are. But when you can get to a spot where you can get a good handle on your past, and then you have a plan for your future, at least a sketch. I expect to do this by this certain, you know, the Lord may come back. He may providentially hinder you, but you've got a plan. If you've got a plan in the future and you understand your past, then you should know what to do with right now. Correct? Do you think our culture has figured this out? Do you think we know what we're doing right now? Because if you don't grasp your past and you don't have a plan for your future, the best case you could wind up with is drifting. And uh, drifting might be a lot of fun, and you can consume a lot of great stuff America has to offer, but at the end of the day, you will have a mountain of regret because that's not the purpose for which you were created. That's not purpose at all. God created you for a purpose. How is this guy from last week driven to the extremities but then laid back as anyone could ever be at the same time because he was mastered, which means he's able to master his circumstances. It's, it's, it's quite someone to look at and uh, learn from. But I think that works. So he's told them his past, his future. Now they're going to talk about the present. So here's what you do. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's talking to pastors here. There's the flock, but his first matter of business is to take care of yourself. And then all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We'll come back to that in a moment. Who made the overseers? The Holy Spirit made the overseers. And for what? To care for the church of God. And this is the passage or phrase that has no bottom. Which he obtained with his own blood. Um, say you've got to leave the country. Go as far from where you live as you possibly can on the planet. Forget that. Let's just say you're going to space or something, you know, really far, another planet. Make it as dramatic as we can. And you must leave your husband or wife in the care of someone else. Who do you pick? Would that be an easy decision or a tough decision? Do you just, uh, on your way out to the spaceship, you know, uh, throw your house keys and, and uh, checkbook and, and maybe the TV remote uh, to the neighbor and say, they're all yours. 
Kids too. I'll be back, I don't know, maybe never. All that's supposed to be a joke. (laughs) Is not your spouse, your children, your family the most important thing on the planet to you? And wouldn't you deliberate for a long time making sure that you had the best you could possibly find to entrust them to in your absence? Jesus has gone back to heaven. And this is only what he obtained with his blood, his bride. And that's what these men are shepherds of, overseers, teachers. The stakes could not be higher. And we're humans. This is, not a, this is an all-jaw-dropping verse to read, but it's not a fun verse to read. Because if you, if you figure that out, no one is sufficient to this. But then he uses humans to do it. So I don't know if, they, if it took them back, if it sunk in, if on the drive home, you know, they think about it. But then he goes in verse 9, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. There's that warning. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Everyone with tears. So the, the alertness necessary to keep the wolves away involves emotions down to nightly and daily admonition and complete with tears. All right. One of those or each of these hangs on another. It's like links in a chain. So if you want to know verse 28, 29, 30, 31, it's very simple. If you can't care for yourself spiritually, how can you care for anyone else, much less the bride for which Christ died? And that's a tough one. Um, My dear wife here hasn't had a warm meal since, I don't know, 16 years. Why not? Because there's kids in the house to cook for. And there are times where I say, baby doll, you're going to need to eat something. Now that we're expecting another, that's taking care of itself. (laughs) Um. I can work out of that when I get home. We do drive separately. Um, But the point I'm trying to make is every now and then it's important to remind ourselves, if not each other, you can help someone to the detriment of yourself. You can wear yourself out. Pastors can burn out. Pastors can burn out their volunteers. We have our limits And if we starve ourselves spiritually, what good are we spiritually to anyone else? So he makes sure that they pay attention to this. No church ever rises above its leadership unless, of course, the church is throwing out that leadership because they don't have any leadership. But God help the church whose leadership neglects the care of its own souls. And you probably won't know what's in trouble for a while. And then when it starts to show, it'll probably disintegrate and quickly. But they're also to pay attention to the flock. Pay attention to yourself so that your flock has you and a healthy you. What else is a shepherd to do but to tend the flock? I mean, it's not complicated. Feed them, protect them from whom? From wolves. Which kind of wolves? Wolves that are on the outside trying to get in. And every now and then wolves on the inside trying to destroy everything, having gotten under the fence. And who is this flock? Again, the bride of Christ, which he obtained with his own blood. And a calendar year of Sundays wouldn't be enough to plumb the depths of those words. Verse 32. He's going on again with the the present. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Um. These are, in essence, his last words for them, isn't it? I think we make a lot out of last words. I don't remember my daddy's last words to me because in handling things and in and out of the house, I had expected more time. I wasn't paying attention to what was said to remember the ones that would have been last. My brother remembers his. My sister remembers hers. My mother, I love you with whatever I've got left. 
was his last to her. She got the best ones. Um, but are, the, are, the, are they more important or is it just that we fixate on them? But I think out of everything that he says here, he's leaving. I commend you to God and to his word of grace. God is real and he saves sinners. That's what I leave you with. If that's not enough, I have nothing left to give. That's it. That's what you've got. That's what you share with the world. If you don't share it with the world, nobody will share it with the world because nobody has it but the church for which he died. God and the word, the message of his grace. He said, I coveted no one's gold or silver. You know that my hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Maybe that's part of alleviating misunderstanding that may go into questioning what his motives were. All these things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord. How he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. You know, that's not found in the scriptures, except for here. And I think it'll fit with what John said. And Jesus did many other things which are not written in this book. Uh, If Paul's saying Jesus said it, I'm sure Jesus said it. But what he's trying to say is there's more than just the teaching and the preachings. There's stuff that needs to be done. And we're doing that stuff because it's better to give than to receive. And then what is able to build up one such that the inheritance they look forward to is nothing less than those who are found spotless before the God of the universe. If you look back at that, that passage, um, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which he is able to build you up to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. If God's got a family, he's prepared a place in heaven for, and they have what he has. You know how inheritances work. You get what your family has. It comes to you. This is the whole ball of wax. This is a cattle on a thousand hills. How do you get it? Well, it's found in the knowledge of God and the message of His grace. None of this is rocket science. There's no higher goal. There's no higher reward. There's no better purpose. And then over against that idea is what he's... It's kind of like a contrast. You got this inheritance of wealth, but down here on earth... You all remember, I, I, didn't, I didn't take anything from you. I, I supported myself by myself. So we're left with verse 36, 7, and 8. And that's the close. When he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the words he'd spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. I know at some point it will probably get probably become a stretch to keep looking at life. But you tend to look at life through where you, you live, right? I think it's quite natural that the thing that seemed to upset them the most was when they found out their time with him is up. Don't we seem to abuse relationships when we think we've got all the time in the world? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get together. It'll be fun. They write songs about that, right? Was it Cats in the Cradle? I hate that song. (laughs) Every son and father hates that song because it's an indictment. Now, this man's a mover and a shaker. We talked about last week. He never stays anywhere long. But when he's there, it's real. And in this case, the time is up. So, yeah. Sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. I I, I wish I had imagination or at least a picture of the beach and what the dock might have looked like and these men sitting on it and what everybody doing their thing thought. What are they doing over there? Was this a Amway get-together or something? I heard they were church people. Um... But what we've got, if you boil all this down, and here's how we'll try to uh, put this in the position of a what's in this for me. Because what we've got is a message from a shepherd to other shepherds. So the likelihood or risk is off the charts of temptation to say, well, this, this, is, this is a good message, but it's for somebody else. It's not for me. 
I'm not a shepherd. I mean, technically speaking, you could say there's, there's three of us in this room uh, who are paid so that we don't have to work with these so that we can be busy here. That wasn't what Paul did, but Paul was the one who argued for that. He said, give them double honor. Find out what honor is and double it. You know? But then he never took it. He never took it just because it might be a stumbling block. But what do we do for people reading Acts 20 who say that they're not a shepherd? I would simply say, well, you're a sheep, right? And even shepherds need shepherding. So I think we're all in this. And if you think about the ramifications or implications of shepherding as a sheep, well, yeah, that applies to you too. You want to do this the right way. So if we can say this about shepherds directly and sheep indirectly as they benefit or suffer accordingly, let's recognize at least a few things that just seem to shake out easily enough if we put this in a box and do some shaking. First of all, a shepherd's ministry has its misunderstandings. If you don't like being misunderstood, do not go to seminary and get trained and think you'll enjoy shepherding a flock. It is rife with this misunderstanding, and that shouldn't shock anybody. It's the same anywhere. If you've got a bunch of people looking, how many of you, if you tomorrow when you get to work, found your boss man and said, hey, have you ever been misunderstood? Did you like it? They're going to say yes and no. It's, it's kind of part of life, but some people think that in churches nothing bad happens and no one ever misunderstands each other. I think we do it regularly because of our humanity, our fallenness. It's just the way we are. Uh, sometimes I'll write letters to young men, especially uh, to put in a bag with other letters that go with them off to their honeymoon and the rest of their life together. And, and one of the things I try to say in there is, hey, go easy on people. Because we regularly and routinely just flat out misunderstand one another. Don't take it personal. Try to be informed. Listen from their perspective. If you do talk about things, give them an opportunity to give back what you gave them just so you know they understood what you said and vice versa. You may be surprised. It can be worked out. But it'll always be a problem. And Paul had it in, in bushels. Um. I thought about all kinds of ways I could explain this just from being a pastor's son and the stuff that my father went through and we had to watch. It'd be fun to tell you, but a lot of these people are still alive. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Ask me later and I, I, I'll tell you, but not while something's recording me for time and memorial, right? <laughs> but we lived it and just absorbing it most of the time. Paul appealed to their knowledge. Their memory, if that doesn't work, sometimes that's all you've got. You just give the rest to the Lord. Also, we can say that shepherding involves tears and trials. And again, I'm here to testify that uh, most of that doesn't get credit. It doesn't necessarily deserve credit. It's nothing special. But most of it's done in the background it's usually after a minister is in glory that people start talking as to what they did and how they changed their lives and helped them through struggles. All while the rest of us thought, well, they're good for nothing. I can't find them or they won't answer the phone or blah, blah, blah. If it's the shepherd doing a shepherding job that's probably dirty and might be smelly, they're out in the field with the sheep. Or they're studying so they can feed the sheep. But it's massive amounts of misunderstanding. And there are tears. And there are trials. Most of which are hidden in the background. We could also say that's as plain as anything in this passage. The Holy Spirit makes the shepherd. Seminary doesn't make shepherds. There's a lot of people who go to seminary that don't wind up shepherding. The Holy Spirit does that. He calls them, equips them, gives them things that they readily admit they don't have and they don't know how this even works sometimes. If it weren't that way, what would be the opposite? Shepherds make themselves. Um, there's a reason why 
most people don't like folks like presidents and heads of state because the world can't live with them. A guy who says, qualified to lead the nation's most, the world's most powerful nation. Yeah, I can do it. Absolutely, I can do it. Really? No man can do that. But some do. But you can, this is where one person says that's the most humble thing I've ever heard and the other says it's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard. Back to misunderstanding. But the Holy Spirit makes shepherds and we're thankful that he does. So with those things said, and I think they're clear enough, I thought maybe it'd be helpful to just take a shot at, okay, when looking for a shepherd... Because this could be looking for your teaching pastor. This could be looking for an administrator. This could be looking for a director. But if you're going to attach the word pastor, which means shepherd, to that designation, this passage and others gives us insight into what we are looking for. You don't want the hireling that when trouble comes, leaves the sheep. The sheep are scattered. You've got a mess. The world is full of people that will do whatever you tell them for enough money. Ministry is not what that's all about. But from here, let's just take a stab at something. Look for one who doesn't shrink from suffering. And this is one of those things where uh, you should have looked further than myself. I shrink from suffering. I shrink in the presence of suffering. I know better than to run from it. It's not fun. It, it takes things out of you you don't even know that you have in there for it to take but when weeping with people who've lost as you've lost that's shepherding you can't run away from that um, and it'll take a while to know a young man in order to know whether or not that's what happens we talked about John Mark Paul said he's not going with us on the second trip he abandoned us he shrank from whatever was scaring him. And then later he was useful. There's redemption for that. But it's something to look for. That's what Paul tells us. I didn't shrink from suffering. Also look for one who doesn't shrink from telling the truth and the whole truth. That's the second thing he said he didn't shrink from. I told you what was true. I didn't shrink back from it. I told you the whole thing. Unadulterated truth. There were plenty of times it could have went a lot easier for Paul if he'd have just sidestepped something ever so slightly. His professors probably wouldn't have even noticed. He made sure to tell them absolutely. And, and here's, there's a big difference between truth-telling and speaking with no thought. You might have a friend or something that speaks often with no thought but then says, well, I'm just telling the truth. No, that may well have been true. But the way you said it was deplorable and nobody cares past that point. There's something to be said about telling the truth and then just speaking with no thought. That wasn't, that wasn't Paul. He wasn't half-cocked. He knew exactly what to do and the pain associated with it. Look for one who knows his calling. What was Paul's calling? Teaching and testifying. Teaching what Jesus taught him and testifying to the gospel, repentance and faith. Um, if you stick the guy, he needs to bleed the gospel. It just needs to be obvious that that's his calling. That, that he might not be the guy in Walmart to just climb up on some display and start screaming out loud. Now, that's a quick way for a free ride to jail. Um, but when it comes down to it, somebody asks a very weighty question. It's not going to be that psychoanalyst we talked about that shepherding might be. No, he's going to show you in Scripture. Here's what can help. Um, look for someone who will take responsibility first for himself. Then I wrote down, burnout is usually one's own fault. Because at the end of the day, you are the only one that has command over your yes word and your no word. I wish it was different. But if I can't say no and overbook myself and uh, shortchange my family as a result, I'm considered worse than an infidel, says the same book that I'm studying to make sure I have something to say at 10.30 on Sunday morning. This one's tough. 
you'll have to find a guy who knows how to protect himself from himself. It's dreadful. And where does the misunderstanding come in with this? All right? I'm in trouble. I can't get this all done. I'm going to have to say yes, yes, no, 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 yes, absolutely yes, and absolutely no. Out of that whole equation, you got about 50% of the people that think, why not? Right? And the other half, he's my man. Then go to the next week. Reverse it. Will the people that hated you love you and the people that loved you hate you? Depends on how long their memory lasts. And we tend to hang on to the good stuff and we tend... No, we don't, do we? We tend to forget the good stuff and we tend to hang on to and stew over the bad stuff. Half of this stuff will work in your marriages, by the way, if you're not enjoying yourselves. Look for one who'll run off the wolves. Hire a guy to come to your church and run off wolves? Well... We like that wolf, and that wolf is my husband. <laughs> that wolf was uh, so-and-so's, you know. That wolf gives a lot of money. What do you do? Do you want a good shepherd or do you want a hireling? Look for one who knows the flock is not his own. He's a steward. That flock is bought by the blood of Jesus, God's son. That's a big one. Look for one who doesn't mind working with his hands. That was in here. I think if I was in charge, I'm not. I would write some courses for seminary. One would be change your own oil. Because it's too expensive to do it the other way and pay somebody. Less. You, you do remember your pastor, right? Change your own oil so your kids can go to college for a weekend <laughs> or something like that. Um, is it cool to have a pastor who couldn't change a light bulb if his life depended on it? I mean, there's certain things that, that you need to do. Now, everybody's different. Mechanical inclination is not something God gave everybody. But self-sufficiency against the dynamic of people you're working with and the gospel that you're preaching, don't ever let that become a stumbling block such that the guy's always needy, everything's broken, his life is full of drama, he's always ready for a a bailout or a handout. And where churches are loving and they take care of people that way, you might could go on for months or years with other people not knowing they're feeding a problem there's a reason why Paul said I work with my hands and then look for one who knows when it's time to say goodbye I don't know how he did it every little church I ever got attached to I wanted to stay Um, and moves that I've made came with with much planning or with things I did not foresee and the Lord took care of it manually. But there comes a time where the purpose for which you're in a place expires. Maybe that's just because you're different and they're different or someone else or you going over here or you've been around long enough that the clock is the issue. With my father and his almost 30 years in Virginia and your previous pastor with 30 years here at Wake Chapel, there was one similarity between the two. There's lots, but one particular to me. The Lord took the very gift that he gave them to do their job away before they left this earth. And the withdrawal of that gift necessitated the end of their active ministry. They didn't do, couldn't do what they'd done in the past. Figure that out. Why is it that way? I don't know. I'll ask when I get to heaven. But there must be some wisdom and some structure to help people understand when it's time to say goodbye. And then this last one. Look for a shepherd who can leave his tears on a beach. 
at a certain point, life just gets you in a sp- position where you just quit trying to wipe them or hide them. I mean, it's either this thing is real and these people are real and the, the, the stakes are real and heaven is real and your emotions respond accordingly or you've got a hireling that just is somewhere else but he's not there. When it hits the fan, I want to be on the beach with the shepherd who'll cry with me or cry together. I don't know what it'd be like to walk past those guys after they left and look at tears on a beach, but whatever it is, I want it. I want a ministry worth that, that hurts when it's over, is miserable in the middle, is full of misunderstanding, (laughs) And is for the purpose of caring for the business for which Christ died. Where are you going to find a job like that? Where are you going to participate and volunteer in a mechanism like that? Uh, where are you, are you going to be able to lay your hands, your eyes, your ears, your heart, your senses on eternal words of, of truth? in community with people who can be strong on the day where you're weak and you can be strong on the day that they're weak. Where at a certain point, um, the message is over. I think we've come to that point. I'm trying to do better with the end of sermon rambling. You can pray for me in that regard. But folks, I... I wish we could spend a month in this passage because it just, at this point in my journey, speaks to me. I look up to this man and these other men and am completely and totally thankful for the Lord beyond words to what I see as far as a team aspect of this. It's a one-man band, no such thing. And as this church grows, we'll need to bring on some more shepherds and broaden that team. And you can be in prayer for that. And I would beg you to do so. And along the way, the Lord will give us passages like this to help us understand, help us make decisions, help us care for one another and to prepare us for glory. But with that said, let's us bow our head in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for another passage in Scripture, one that needed a fair look to break it apart and to see what's in there. Lord, there's a lot in there. And Lord, would you give us the wisdom we need to behave ourselves wisely and to seek out shepherds that are worthy of the title as fragile, frail, and broken as they are, but backed by the authority of the God of the universe. Lord, bless this church, bless this church family, bless our future. We thank you for our past, and with a plan in place, would you help us to be confidently aware, secure, involved, and engaged right now. We ask all this in your precious name, amen.